This town ain't small, it's a little above, they say. Our ball club may be minor league, but at least it's triple A. We sit below the Marlboro Man, above the right to wall. We do the wave all Welcome back to the Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm here with my co-host, Sal Marinello, the star of our show. This is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. We're on episode 135 here on the network, and want to thank our faithful listeners. We're up to 13,400, creeping close to 500. Should Sal's show should put us over the top there. Uh, continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. Also engage us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. Uh, we will get back to you. We had a couple hundred questions today, Sal, on Facebook. I always get to one bright and early in the morning. Try to get them before our audience gets up. Um, welcome back to your show today. Uh, glad to have you. You'll be the sol- solo show on Wednesday here. Great. Good to be here. Love doing the show. So I'll do it anytime, place. Yeah. We, uh, so we, we were chatting before and there's a, and I won't, I won't spoil the punchline here. I'll kind of let you get into it, but the Weight Watchers. I'll just kind of throw that at you. What's what's happening with them? Well, we've talked about this concept of we're addressing symptoms and not root causes. And the story came out this week now that Weight Watchers is getting into the business of pres- prescribing the um, what's supposed to be a type 2 diabetes drug, which is now being used as an anti-obesity um, therapy. And um, now... And, you know, my my tweet was, tell tell us your diet doesn't work without telling us. And, you know, now you're going to tell us we need this drug with Weight Watchers. So it, we're just going down the rabbit hole. You know, Oprah Winfrey has been, you know, neck deep with them and she's still in on this. Um, really, what's happening is Weight Watchers is buying a telehealth subscription service. So they're going to be able to now prescribe drugs to their Weight Watchers uh, clients to help them lose weight. It's just, it, it, again, everything that's wrong with public health, our approach to public health, the market's approach to public health is kind of encompassed in this story. It, it's just amazing. It's amazing, Dave. We're seeing the culmination of, uh, of the efforts that started back when I was a kid. You know, my mom still concerned about her weight in her 80s, healthy, never sick, always was on a diet, never needed to be. And, you know, that age group, women of that age group were the target of this marketing garbage that ruined our eating habits and have ruined America's health. And it's a combination of companies like Weight Watchers and the federal government with their food pyramid that have created the very problem they're trying to cure now or solve. And it's a, it's a ridiculous situation. It, it almost reads like farce, but it's being taken seriously. Well, I think it's important that you're, you're addressing it and we, we break it down for our audience because they're, they're all ears with this stuff. It's, it seems to be a profitable formula, right? They, they create, they take part in helping create a problem. They're not as blatant in saying that, but all of a sudden magically they have this very profitable solution on the other side. Well, you said it best in the last show, Dave. You said um, chaos 
uh, cells or what? what I, I, now it went right out of my head. It was such a great phrase. I can't remember. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of profit to be made in chaos. Yeah, there's profit. There's a lot of money to be made in chaos. And, and we're seeing it here. And, you know, you talk about everyone bandies about the term Orwellian in a lot of senses with the use of language and how words are turned around and meant something mean something they're not meant to mean and how they play word games and you have this corporate babble. You read, the, you just listen to this statement that came from Weight Watchers. Here, I'm going to read this to you. There is growing scientific evidence that for some prescription chronic weight management medications can address the biological components of obesity. That's just such a BS phrase full, filled with garbage and hemming and hawing, and, and it sounds good, but it really, if you parse it, it's it, it's meaning it's a meaningless statement. And this generation, you know, we're talking about we're, we're talking about what the 50, 50 to mid sixties generation of you were talking about the or is it older? It's older because uh, I'm sixty, so you know you're talking about women in the sixties who were the targets of my mom. I remember my mom going to Weight Watchers meetings. You know, back in the early 70s, even 60s, and if I go back and we look at family pictures, and I've always said, you know, I always said to her, Mom, you you look at these pictures, you didn't need to lose weight. But that was the message, you know, and the nonsense came out, you could never be too rich or too thin. And how much trouble has that gotten us into on both sides of that uh, statement? So you're, and, and again, you're being told how great these diets are, and yet people are on them for tens of years. Well, why are, why, why are you still a, a Weight Watchers customer if the diet works? Because they, they solved the problem. They can no longer make money. Well, well, but, but see here, this is, there's a, there's a very, it, it sounds like we're playing word games, Dave, but it's something called disordered eating. So it, it's not a, an eating disorder per se, but it's on the spectrum of an eating disorder. And this disordered eater, disordered eating is, where you're doing certain things and a big, a big part of disordered eating is externally generated menus. So in other words, someone else is telling you what to eat. And that's what all of these diets are. And people could protest until they're blue in the face. But when you look at the research, none of these diets do what they say they do. The weight loss over time is no better than the weight loss that could come from people doing it on their own. As a matter of fact, people who do do it the right way on their own are always better off than people who are dependent on this externally driven menu. Someone else telling you what to eat. You know, for years we were told, oh, Weight Watchers is great. Lose weight and eat real food. Now we're being told, well, eat great, eat real food with Weight Watchers and we'll give you this drug to help you lose weight. It's just, it's, it's beyond farce. Yeah, it's, it's, I think we could probably could go across the spectrum on all ages, kind of randomly rotate activities. There's such an inertia for immediate gratification that I could see very easily how our society's fallen into jumping on this this pill. So disordered eating, um, get a, get ahead of the curve. How do we get ahead of the curve now? What's the next outside of this? They they created a you know the the food table, and then they create the drug to combat what they created initially, where does the, the puzzle or mystery, where does it go next? Well, well, well even more insidious or more cynical than this, this new food pyramid is that big food now has co-opted, whether it was the Tufts board that came up with the new 
guidelines that they came out with, which again, we discussed on the show, they said that, uh, you know, breakfast cereals like Fruit Loops and some of these cereals are better than eating eggs. And they say that with a straight face uh, to the government agencies that have absolutely no clue as to what they're doing that have created this problem since the uh, since the ant days of Ansel Keys and the low fat diet, which was all made up BS and all the data that proved that it wasn't fat that made people fat, but it was sugar that that data was hidden and suppressed and people's careers were ruined. Uh, similar to what we're seeing now, Dave, with the vaccine, where uh, people who spoke out against a lot of the things that were being done, uh, people were People had their career ruined and other people didn't speak out in fear of having their careers ruined. So this this is a uh, nothing new. It's just the same old playbook. And again, it's to the detriment of us, to the detriment of the public. Yeah. How do how do our outside of listening to to our podcast, how can the regular person get educated on how, you know, not falling down the, the bad path of disordered eating to really govern themselves? Well, I, you know what, Dave, I'm 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 very uh, pessimistic at this point. We've talked about, let's look at what we talked about on the last show about all the problems we have in major league pitching and major league baseball with the pitching and the solutions are in the past. No one's looking to it. Same thing here. We didn't have this problem until 50 years ago, 60 years ago. So I would say the seventies, it started, it started really Dave, the, the movement started with president Eisenhower, where he suffered heart attacks while in the white house and, served out his terms in, in frail health. The thought was then, and you go back, um, it's a guy by the name of, of, I believe it was Dr. Malcolm Kendrick who wrote the article. It might not be him. I think it was him, but someone wrote the article. I believe it was Kendrick about, or wrote a piece about what bed, how many thousands and tens of thousands of people died from bed rest after having a heart attack because of the mechanisms that we now know are at work uh, post heart attack and what happens when you're sedentary and what, what happens during the heart attack and the things that we need to do to treat these, uh, these incidents instances. So it started back in the late fifties and it really ramped up in the seventies with the diet. I, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm extremely pessimistic. I don't think as a society, we're going to overcome this because the volume of information at both in the 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 loudness of it, if I put that in quotes, and the sheer amount of it is going to drown out people that are trying to get people to do things the right way. We do. We have so much input nowadays with social media and whatnot. I think one, it's it's hard for people to to figure out what's the best. We we talk about it and we see it with the skill training and the hitting, the pitching, the throwing, the even you know basketball. There's everyone's got a skill trainer now and, and a hitting coach or a swing coach. So yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised since the adults are the ones paying for that stuff that they're as trapped in this world as the kids are. Well, um, the, adults, the adults were as kids, as the targets of, uh, you know, when their, their parents were the targets of this effort to, I guess, change the way people look at how they eat. That That's all they know now. I, I mean, I have people, Dave, and I've had people come to me over 20, this is not just recently, I'm going to say almost 30 years ago, I remember clients coming to me, I don't know what to eat. I mean, just just think about that, what that statement means. I don't know what to eat. So there's your point about confusion. We yeah. had parents confused 
you know, my generation as a baby, we're the first generation where we were, our mothers were told not to breastfeed, to use formula. And guess what? When did all these other, a lot of these other ailments crop up? Allergies, asthma, the other cognitive issues, a lot of other uh, autoimmune situations all started to crop up in, in the kids that were born in the 60s and 70s. And, and actually, it's getting worse as we move forward. So, you know, this has been a constant problem for 50 plus years, 60 years people in authority giving us information that leads to problems. And then we turn to these people for the answers. It's the Stockholm syndrome, where the hostages start to have positive feelings for the people that are keeping them hostage. That's that's what we have. We're, we're looking to the, we're gonna look to Weight Watchers, which has had 60 years almost to try to help people with their diet and they can't. So now they're gonna have a drug and now you're gonna go back to them to get help. It's insane. Yeah, it's 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 uh, you're you're making thousands of thoughts go off in my head with uh, when when you talk about Stockholm syndrome, love thy cap captor. The uh, we see that with the if you go into situations that are government run, like housing authorities, and where they try to convince people to the single family that the father wasn't needed uh, in a household. It's but it's it goes from food to parents to housing to you name it. Uh, but with with this situation here with the food. I mean, for somebody to say, what do I eat? It's like saying, what do, how do I breathe? How do I breathe? That's exactly what I was thinking. And how do I exercise? Yeah. How, how do I train for baseball? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you in a machine where you're lying in a, in a 45 degree angle with your feet up against something, and you're going to push this heavy weight up and down. That's how you're going to train for baseball. Well, but it doesn't look like baseball, but, but trust me, it's going to make you stronger. And then the guy goes out and gets hurt. And they're telling them it's because they're not in shape and it's not they're not strong enough. And it, it dovetails into this story about the kid breaking his foot in the weight room. Yeah. And everyone's laughing. It's like, oh, you know, he dropped the weight on his foot. How about all these other injuries that are occurring every day in the because of the weight room? You know, the oblique injury suffered by, um, you know, these ball players and the, the fractured rib, Quintana, and all these injuries that come out on the field, those are all – Basically, uh, in quotes, I'm going to put it, it's the same thing as dropping a weight on your foot in the weight room because that's where they're happening, in the weight room. Yeah, I, I didn't think about it as that connected. Uh, kind of touching on the, the weight room real quick. We've got lots of kids, obviously, that that work out and lift. Guy drops a weight on his foot. That's, I mean, that's weight room 101. Um, how do you, I, I, from what I heard, it was a plate. So he had a 45-pound plate in his hand picked it up. There's grooves in those. I mean, I know we're an audio show. Would you be able to give a quick to these kids out there that are lifting weights, proper ways to carry weights? Um, you know, how do you, how do you clean up a weight room just so that they don't get hurt? What footwear do you wear? And I, I didn't even think about that. He probably didn't even have on shoes, right? Uh, well, I mean, if you have any kind of shoe on, if you're dropping 45 pounds on it, you're going to, it doesn't matter if I, I have nice, good sneakers on. If I drop the 45 pound weight plate on my foot from any kind of distance, it's going to hurt. You know, and again, it's it, this this is the type of thing eventually it's going to happen. I mean, you would try not to have it happen. But, you know, it's like the guy who gets hit with the foul ball because he's not paying attention and takes one in the head or, or whatever. Though, these are things that you could try to prevent, and I get that. And there is definitely weight room etiquette. And sometimes you get casual. You know, it's just like, you know, it's worse. People drive. You know, you get distracted by your GPS. You get distracted by the message screen on the highway. You get distracted by changing the radio station or your phone rings and you want to talk to someone. So, 
we have all these distractions that are because that's where we are as a society, whether it's the cell phone, whether it's another multimedia device that gets our attention. This, that, but again, my point about dropping your weight on the foot, it it's something that everyone's going to jump on and ignore the fact that the fact that they're in the weight room is hurting them. And let's go back to this Cubs player, say a Suzuki. He was he spent his whole career in the playing in Japan, and he's part of the Cubs program. And he's got a strained oblique, and they're talking about how he never felt like he he knew what he he never had this kind of injury before. Well, what happened? He's part of an American baseball team now, probably following some of their guidelines to train, and he gets an oblique injury. So that's the same as him dropping a weight on his foot, David. Just it's not as funny, and no one wants to blame the workout because then who made who who made these players use the workout? Who designed the workout? Now there's a person that's responsible for these injuries and there's organizations responsible for these injuries where it's easy to make fun of a guy for dropping a weight or making fun, like making light of the situation yeah. and, 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 and distracting us from the st- from the point that the fact that they're in the weight room as much as they are, is the reason we're in this problem uh, in this situation with all these injury problems. And we are uh, weight room obsessed here in, in our pro sports, correct? Yes. And everything we're, we're, we are heavy lifting obsessed with every aspect of our society, whether it's the general fitness person, whether it's the athlete, it doesn't matter. And it's, uh, it's ridiculous. It's been that it's been on that path since the seventies. And it, again, that train is, is barreling ahead in that direction. What what would you imagine if, if you're not familiar with the Korean style of training or the, or the Japanese style of training? Cause we have a lot of Japanese players that come over as well. They and uh, you know, Tani's had some injuries since he's come. He may be a little different, but what would you imagine if you don't know that they're doing over there to stay healthy and kind of lead into the drastic shift they see here to kind of give our audience an idea of how something like that happens to a, a really a machine, a professional athlete? Well, I think the problem we have, and I'm not blaming football for it, but we have a football dominant sports culture where Everybody wants to be the NFL. Everybody wants to be the big, strong stud that is kind of the sports idol these days. And for as much as the NBA and all of those sports are still getting a lot of press, at the end of the day, you still see videos of these NBA stars working out, trying to lift heavily like we've lifted in football. So we have football that's being set up as the ideal for all sports. And to be honest with you, football is training for football is a very specific endeavor that's completely different than basketball, than baseball, than lacrosse, than soccer. You don't have a lot of the injuries in soccer for as much as they play that you get in these other sports. I I don't think they have the time to be in the weight room as much as the Americans do. And I don't think there's the emphasis to get back to your point about Japan or Korea. They have sports. They're, uh, I know traditionally they've been competitive in wrestling and weightlifting, but those sports don't infect the other sports with their training regimens. And so I think the best thing probably that you could say about their programs is they don't have football as the kind of overarching theme for everything that's done, you know, where, where we have that here. Everybody wants to train like a football player. And is it, and you're in that that world with the 
with the uh, mental and physical training. But with the physical training part, is there kind of a trickle down like the top dogs or the football guys and everybody kind of descends off of that? Yeah, I, I, I guarantee you. Look at, you know, if you look at some of the big name baseball, I hate the term strength coach, but strength coaches, a lot of them had roots in college or pro football. I know the Mets had a guy for years who was at Michigan and they had a disastrous stretch when this guy was in charge of uh, their strength and conditioning. I don't think he's still there, but that's, that's the golden ticket. You worked for the NFL or you worked for a top SEC or big 10 or PAC 12 football program. You're going to get a strength job in any sport. Even if you were, even if you were just a football guy, I'm not going to say who it is, but I have a, a colleague that I knew quite well who was the head strength coach at a top 10 multi-sport top 10 university said he never wanted to get involved with football because of a what we're talking about and b the fortune of that guy that strength coach for football rises and falls with the football team that's why this person I'm talking to has been in his job for 25 years because he's smart enough to not you know get involved in that yeah but these so these these other sports the and I've been a part of coaching two of them at the collegiate level baseball basketball all those guys aspire to be the football guy at some point. So that I'm guessing that affects the way that they train their their sports. Of course. And that's the equipment in the weight room. I, I think I've mentioned this before. I had a super successful high school All-American women's girls lacrosse player who went to a top lacrosse school. And they worked out in the weight room with the football right after the football team with the same strength coach that did the football team. She was always hurt, always had hamstring problems. You know, they having having them do having these girls, young, still young, developing athletes do lifts that older men with different hormonal profiles and different needs for their sport, having them do the same workout. So this is this that was 15 plus years ago. So no, nothing's changing. It's getting worse. So that's where we are. Yeah, no, it's uh, and it gets it's. it's interesting how it's it's kind of a syndrome you, you started talking about weight watchers and we're getting into the, the lifting and i think i threw housing authority in there <laughs> and uh, i mean it seems to be a syndrome throughout our society with a lot of different um with a lot of different areas all you know it's funny i saw this article there you know they're talking about it was a week or so ago about should the mets be worried about matt scherzer playing golf i'll say i would rather him play golf and take him out of the weight room uh than the other way around yeah, that's well. He's out moving. He's rotational. He's not. So, he's not he, you know, Tom Brady. I I think his guy is, you know, probably an opportunist. Maybe I'm being kind, but the best thing I think you could say about Brady's training is the guy he worked with got him out of what the the Patriots were doing as a team. I think that was a case of addition by subtraction. So yeah, he seemed to be more into mobility than development. Yeah, he, he wasn't doing the. The nonsense. And, you know, we had this discussion <clears throat> about the bench press for throwing athletes and Anthony Richardson, uh, quarterback from Florida, had a record setting day at the NFL Combine. Nowhere did it mention what his bench press was. It was his 40. It was his vertical and a little bit about his throwing. But that's that's another case of, you know, again, what are these guys doing? And what's important at the at the time where you're going to be evaluated, no one cared about what that guy's bench pressing. 
Yeah. Did he even bench press? I didn't even look to see. Well, the year before, out of all the quarterbacks, the year before, nobody bench pressed. So my sense is that's now we've we've gotten onto the other side of that hill, and that's I don't think we're going to go back up it. It's a it's a and I know just from making that mistake as a college and professional athlete, where I got away from that a little bit because it started bothering my rotator cuff, uh, and I you don't get that full mobility when you're coming down, and really I could develop that strength in another another area and a lot of it came from just doing the exercise of hitting or throwing or um, whatever it was I was doing or bodyweight stuff with with the quarterback now I, I and if you don't want to go this direction we can jump off but why uh, what did you think of Richardson's day how do you think that translates and um, why don't we see quarterbacks with rotator injuries I don't know I I think there's a lot of a lot to be said about being able to throw on the move. And you would think that would be more difficult, but sometimes, you know, you've got that fixed, that's really an, op- uh, it's a closed skill pitching more. So it, it technically, I guess it could, could, could be considered an open skill where, you know, an open skill is it, it, cha- it can change based on environment and other circumstances of the, of the game. But, you know, a pitcher, so much of that is, is, starting from the same kind of movement pattern that the training probably is worse for the baseball player than it is for the football player. I think the football player at the top level, especially they're much more concerned with their health because if that guy goes down, the you've seen what happens in the NFL, whereas you could have a good starting rotation and one of your starters go down, even your top guy goes down and it's not a death knell. So it's an interesting question. I'm not smart enough to know the answer to it. Uh, I think volume is one of the things that you would believe it or not. I think the quarter football quarterbacks probably throw as much. And and you know what, Dave? Maybe in that lies the answer. We've talked about Bob Gibson how it, the day after his um, starts he would go out and take ground balls at third base and throw to first. So maybe there's something to be said for these guys. Just throw. They throw all the time. They don't do a lot of other stuff necessarily that's going to bang them up. Um, that could be part of it. Is it. What do you think about it being, you know, we you look at a guy like Tiger Woods as a golfer. He's been doing that repetitive motion since he was six years old. And then he got heavy into the lifting too. Um, you could see his body change in other areas. But with um, something well, let's, like... Let's, let's, let's not pretend though that's, that he wasn't on PEDs. That, yeah. you know, that's the... <laughs> Yeah, he lifted, but he was also on PEDs. So he was doing all kinds of things that were bad. He was distance running. You know, I remember them showing videos of him, you know, jogging and running. It's like, well, what are you doing? You know, who's in charge of you here? You you, you ruined in a couple of years what it took your whole life to get to, and he, he, he wasn't happy with it. Someone got in his head. That's, that's one of the biggest underreported uh, scandals of all time. Was his, yeah, because he all of a sudden injury after injury after injury. Yeah. Um, with somebody like, like you mentioned, Bob Gibson playing third. I, I always liked that. My, you know, with my sons, they were doing their throwing today and they're throwing the football. And it's a, you know, college or pro level football. It's big. It makes their hands spread out. If they don't throw properly, the football looks really ugly coming out of their hands. And, and I don't know why that is where you could throw a baseball poorly and still not see that maybe the size of it and the shape. Um, but they, they seem to like it. It seemed to strengthen their arms. They don't have to throw as long distances. Well, well sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, that was it. That was it. Well, I, I, there's not the emphasis on throwing it as hard as you can with every pitch. And there's no – you're not trying to put uh, spin on it or make throw a curveball or do those other things. So it's one of those things, Dave. Also, the ball changes as you go up the ladder. So with little kids, the ball is different than it is when they are older, whereas I think there's some difference in a baseball, but mostly they're the same from – what level up are they the same? Yeah, maybe like the, yeah, little league will be smaller, and then I think it pretty much gets to adult level when they're thirteen. So there, there's a big part of it right there. I think a lot of it is the emphasis of velocity, and there's not necessarily positive things that come from throwing the football as hard as you can. Look at some of the best passers we've seen. You know, obviously for every kid like Josh Allen who has a howitzer. You have a Drew Brees that had a strong enough arm. You know, even at the end of his career, Peyton Manning wasn't throwing howitzers. He was placing the ball, and he had great accuracy and timing. So they learned the art of throwing probably earlier. We've had this discussion. Why is it that these hard throwers have to wait until they have a catastrophic arm injury to learn how to pitch? That should be something that's part and parcel of their training when they're young. It should be, yeah. But as we, you know, with this emphasis on maxing everything out now, whether it's throwing or in the weight room, that uh, it's going to take just a, a complete stoppage of it. Because we, I, we even heard it. Uh, Jim Cott was on our show yesterday. We we did our show, and he was down in spring training with the Twins, and he even talked about it at the major league level that these guys are taught to. Major League pitchers are asked to, demanded of, to throw as hard as they can with every pitch. And hitters are asked to swing as hard as they can with every swing. And mentally, that just doesn't, I mean, from a strategic standpoint, doesn't make sense to me. But from a physical standpoint, that's got to just wreak havoc on your body. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't do that. So there, there's your other answer as to why we're in this situation. And so that leads into your question or your comment you made to me about the pitch clock, because the pitch clock, and you tell me you're the baseball expert, I'm just an observer, that's going to pick up the pace of the game, right? It's going to result in more things, more being done in less period of time. And if the conditioning doesn't match that new demand, there's going to be injuries and lack of performance. You'll see performance issues. Yeah. I am, and I'm, I'm, I was not a pitcher. I was a second baseman. But when I when I coached collegially, now that I've, I've got some of these good young prospects that come through our program, when we pitch, I'm always cognizant of the amount of time between each pitch that it takes them to really recover. Because if you're doing anything, I don't care if it's max or three quarter or half speed, your body has to recover, and everybody's different. My concern with the pitch clock is like everything else in in baseball and in sports right now, we've cookie cuttered it and every pitcher has got to throw. And my concern is, and this kind of throws it back to your area of expertise, how many of these guys have trained to recover that quickly physically, forget the mental part, but physically to where they're ready to throw the next pitch at max velocity? Well, that's that's exactly what I was getting at. And I think we're going to need to see the training mirror the demand of the pitch clock. So what I would say is you got to put the pitch clock out there in practice and you've got to pitch and warm up and everything has to be done as close to that pace 
as possible. Now, I know there's going to be some days, sometimes you could throw with a little less rest, which means you would have to throw fewer pitches. And there's days where you could throw with a little more rest, which means you could throw more pitches. But it, there's got to be a range, and this is going to have to be something that's determined by the experts. There's track workouts. You could, I could tell you if we're going to go out to the field and sprint, and we need to get you fit for the military academy admissions test or to play a season of soccer or to play a football game or to play lacrosse, there is a work-to-rest ratio that is known that we can use in our training. Uh, with my client who is going to Canada to play football, there is the need for him to be in completely different and you could say in some way better shape than he'd need to be to play football here. We're already working on that. We're incorporating different things that they need to do in the Canadian game that's different from what we're doing here in the American game. So all of these things go into conditioning routines and that's going to have to be done with pitchers and and if they're not doing that now in spring training well it'll be interesting to see if we see injuries i i don't know i don't i'm not privy to that maybe kevin or some of our insiders could give us some insight we talked to jim a little bit yesterday he was right down there and uh i think that's the concern that, that we've all had where these these guys are getting injured but we're not seeing um we're not seeing the demands placed on pitchers to prepare to pitch, whether that's running or throwing more long toss, um, sprints and infielders, hitters, same things. They're not out. They're not taking BP anymore. They're not out there before games getting live reads off the bat. They're not running the bases. Um, even the pitchers, uh, we talked about pepper. You know, say something simple as pepper that our generation knows about, but the younger one has no clue what it is. They think it goes with salt. Um, probably on one of those weight watcher diets, but we, you know, pepper is a great way for uh, pitchers to just kind of slowly get into their PFP, their pitcher's fielding practice, where balls are coming off the bat at a half speed. It's coming a little bit to their right, a little bit to their left. Um, but they're, you know, we're seeing guys get injured fielding the ball now back at the pitcher's mound. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's insane. Well, and again, the, the great, <laughs> called the great unknown in quotes, is if this is in fact they're being told to swing and throw as hard as you can. They're not training, I will tell you with 99%, 99.9% certainty, they aren't training in a manner that is going to allow them to swing the bat or pitch a baseball, throw a baseball at full effort. They're not training in a way that's going to help them do that. They're training in a way that's going to hurt them. And this pitch clock thing will be interesting because – even if you did work on it in spring training, Dave, you have guys now that are, say, a, guy, a kid, a guy, I'm going to say he's a kid because a 28-year-old to me is a kid, who's been pitching for more than half of his life on this kind of laissez-faire schedule. Now, all of a sudden, this spring, they're going to put him on this clock, and he's going to have to adjust to that pretty quickly. It'll be interesting to see if there are uh, ramifications from that. Yeah, I, I would, and I'm. I don't have the the background to say yay or nay. But if I were a betting man, I'd put on the fact that if these guys aren't training properly to handle the rigors of that clock physically, now f forget the mental part. You've got to re-register. I flip on the other side now as a hitter. Um, you know, as a hitter, physically, mentally, you're being asked to do the same thing. So your batting practice better resemble that. That I would think, and I, I kind of turn it to you. If I'm a hitter. And I'm being asked to swing at max velocity 
every 14 seconds. Um, how would I train that way? Like what would be the training mechanisms to do that? Well, you're going to have to do the same things you manipulate. There's a couple of variables here. More, there's probably three variables, the work, amount of time you spend working. So that would be the swinging, the amount of time you spend resting and the, the weight of the bat. So again, in my hierarchy of how I think about things, you want to maintain that work to rest ratio. That's, as close to the game as possible with the implement that's the same. And we could get into it at another point, but for now I'm going to tell you there's research in track and field that says the best implements to use to assist you using the implement you need to use in competition are ones that are slightly heavier and slightly lighter than the implement used in competition. This comes out of shot put training. Now I know it's completely different but the body responds to certain stimulus the same, in, in similar ways, and I think it's a good starting point. I'm going here basically not off the top of my head, but with a minimum of information. So this was done in Russia, and again, we can all assume that they were using drugs, but at the end of the day, they still were training and observing the training. The biggest improvements came, and the biggest performers were the ones who were able to handle the implement slightly heavier or slightly lighter than the com competition implement. So let's look at your batting practice. Take your bat, you use you find one that's slightly lighter and slightly heavier and use them in different work to rest ratios. Sometimes you're gonna rest a little less, maybe with the lighter implement. Sometimes you're gonna rest a little more, maybe with the heavier implement. And then you come back and you use the bat that you're going to use in competition and you include that in your training. That's one of the main things I would do right off the bat, because I know that's a tried and true method of improving performance. Now you're going to be happy with me, maybe for the first time since we met each other, but I was doing that as a college athlete through professional baseball and I use it with training without any scientific, you know, nobody was timing my bat speed or the kids we use, but I always felt my bat speed improved with using a bat an ounce heavier than an ounce lighter than going back to my normal bat. Sure. Yeah. It's the concept of, you know, of, you know, a minimum amount, but progressive overload. And then you get accustomed to that. And then you go back to the other bat and maybe, you know, who knows, maybe in a certain circumstance, you'd want to use a lighter bat, even if it's just a, I don't know the increments that you would notice the difference, but say you're just trying to put the bat on the ball and you want to have more bat control, would you use a slightly different bat? I don't know if guys do that. It, to me, it would make sense because you I'm use different clubs for different things in golf and you use you know certain things you could do differently depending on circumstances. So um, I think different pitchers, they will. I know. So an ounce, an ounce, you can feel a difference with an ounce and a bat. And with when I was feeling fatigued a little bit toward the end of the season and I felt like maybe mechanics were going to suffer – I would actually go up and wait because the feel of a heavier bat in my hands made me, um, I felt more grounded where my hands wouldn't travel away from my body a little bit. I almost had to swing it properly to do what I had to do. Um, well, that's, that's interesting because I know there are times where you're teaching someone a complex lift. Not, I'm not talking about deadlifts and, and, and the stuff that's simple, but a complex lift that, again, sometimes a little heavier works better than a little lighter because you could be sloppier 
with the with the lighter weight because you still feel you can control it. Whereas if it gives you that sense that it's a little heavier, you you lock in a little more. Yeah, maybe add something to it. Um, that's uh, that's what I was glad to have you say that. So now I know we're coming up on time, but kind of going back to the beginning with Weight Watchers, if I were to come to you, assuming you wouldn't punch me when I asked you, and I said, Sal, what do I what do I eat? What would you tell me? Uh, I wouldn't punch you, but I'd, I'd have you not, I wouldn't tell you anything. I'd have you do a five day food diary before I would even get there. So I would say, I'm not going to tell you anything because I'm going to ask you to write down in detail everything you've eaten. Um, and you could, you know, in this day and age with texting, I, I have people text me that as on a day to day basis. So, you know, they're not recreating a diet. They can actually sit down and either do it in real time or do it at the end of the day. And I get an idea for where people are. I have an idea for what people are doing wrong. And, you know, some of my clients that I see regularly, I know more about how they eat. But, you know, what I always see is that people don't get enough protein. So that's the first thing I harp on with everybody. So I, I, I like to see what they're eating before I give them any information. Yeah, no, that's a great way. That's a great way to answer that. And so, but now you answered the next question I was going to ask. Some of your things you'd look at would be lack of protein. Anything else? Well, that's the first thing because all the other stuff takes care of itself. I think we get too deep in the weeds. We micromanage this. And again, it goes to disordered eating. All of those things where you're avoiding calories of certain type, where you're restricting food, you're, you know, not doing normal uh, routine eating, eating when you're hungry. Those are things that are all disordered eating. And all of these diets contribute to that from a small to a large extent, depending on the diet, depending on the person. You know, these diets really are built to have you fail. And they want to blame the person for failing instead of it's the diet's fault. You know, the person is trying their best at times and still aren't able to succeed. Well, that is an indictment of the product uh, as much as it is, if not more so than it is of anything else. That's sick, actually, that they would do that. You know, the, uh, user, the user is blamed for the flaw of the car, of the diet. I was going to say, it would be like if your brakes failed and you crashed into a wall and hopefully were okay, but you were blamed, but it was the brakes that failed. Yeah. That, that's a similar situation we're here. Yeah, we call that with, uh, I just had a meeting with our coaching staff for our basketball and baseball programs. And, you know, they gave me their plan and it's likened it to having a map of California. I said to one of them, he said, you've got a map of California and you're trying to tell me to get to New York City. It's not going to happen. You don't have the, the people to do that. So but what, um, how, we're almost 45 minutes here. How do you want to leave our audience? What do you want to leave them with today? Just what we've been trying to talk about here since we kicked off again after the holiday, you have to be critical or use a more critical eye when you read or hear these stories. We're going to see problems that come out of this trend to use this Ozempic and these other drugs to address weight loss. Like I said, we're already there were already stories last week about people with eating disorders are now triggered by this. And we're going to find out there's stories of abuse, just like every other drug, because these drugs are being sold as the panacea. And we know now that, that, that these things don't exist. How many more times do we have to hear 
this drug is going to cure or make this better or make that better. We had the fake fat that was going to cure obesity. We've had these artificial sweeteners that was going to cure obesity. We've had these low fat diets. We've had this low salt diet that was going to cure. We weren't going to have heart disease. We've had statins. So everyone needs to be much more cynical, much more critical, not believe all any of this stuff that you read or hear. And you got to seek out sources that are not mainstream. And I've recommended several here. The most important one I'll recommend now in, in keeping with this theme about obesity is Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. He's really not on he's not on social media. He was actually removed from Wikipedia, but he does have a website and he writes great stuff. Malcolm Kendrick, he's a Scottish doctor. That's how you know your your, your question authority when they mess with your Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's and I actually wrote a Facebook post on that a couple of days ago. I'll pull it up and link it, where it was uh, answering a question not about diet, but but similar concept we're talking about. Where I challenged the the person to become a heretic by nature, question everything, um, become your own first educator. It takes work, um, and it's scary because if you uh, you know you've got a question authority in most cases. And, and Dave, it goes to. I, I welcome my clients asking questions because I have a reason for why I do what I do. I have answers. Now, you could disagree with that. I can. We could go chapter and verse with what was what's being wrong with done wrong with training. And I think I have a case that things should be changed. Same thing with this nutritional information. And anybody out there, you should get satisfactory answers when you push people for answers. And then when they give you these answers, you have to go look at if it's the truth or not. Yeah. Well, with our, with our audience to kind of keep up the speed with you and prep for next week, what, what, if they didn't follow you on Substack, what did they miss? And remind them how to follow you on Substack, Instagram, and all those great sites. My Substack, my, as I mentioned, my Substack rises and falls with my, uh, how busy I am and how unbusy, not busy I am. So that's been kind of a little lagging behind, but the really the best way to find me is on Instagram at, at Coach Sal's Playmakers. I'm using that as my website. I mentioned that last week. I think that's a, a great way. The website, people don't have the attention to sit down and read posts and dig through articles and videos. My, my Instagram is kind of a stream of conscious of my workday when I have a good client, have a good session, I have all good clients. When I have a good session, I can post something they've done. I post stuff what I do. You could get a, a real sense of, of what I do and what my clients do. That's the best place. And I'm on Twitter at, at Sal Marinello. I mostly comment on nutritional stuff because those are the things that I see a lot of and it's all nonsense. But that'll expand as, uh, as I move forward. Good deal. I encourage our audience to stay up to date with Sal. Great stuff. Even if you check in once a day just to peek at his different sites, when you when you find something, read something, see something, there's a lot of thought put into it, and, and you'll get some magic, hopefully, from it. And again, any questions you have here, you can reach out directly to Sal and, and ask for thoughts that we can share on the podcast or even with him personally. And um, I can speak from firsthand experience. He's phenomenal with with training the the young athletes, the intermediate athletes, and the professional athletes. So if you if you've got a kid or you're you're an adult trying to make some money someday, it's a great person to get in your corner. So I recommend him highly uh, in regards to that. I wish I had you back in the day, so I may have lasted a little longer than three years. You never know. You, you never know. know. 
why all these things that you say on here that the the, uh, the the check marks checking off of overtraining, overlifting, over this, over that. I checked all those boxes that you're talking about, and it was self induced. It was uh, you know just not knowing the answers and trying to figure it out. And I think it's made me a better coach. It made me a better coach down the road because I made all the mistakes you could make and um, trying to do it differently with my kids and the kids I coach. But your messages here are a nice exclamation point that I'm finally at the almost 50 years old headed in the right direction. Great. Well, so I'm glad I could help, even if it's one person that gets it and, and, and save them from wasting time and money. I feel like it's a success. Oh, yeah. You, you, at least you got an audience of one here. That's what I say. But your audience is, is growing each week. So I want to thank our 13,000, almost 500 subscribers. Download, listen, like, subscribe. Continue to send us messages on social media. You've got Sal's mediums you can reach out to him on. You can hit me up on Instagram, Twitter. I'm very active on Facebook now. I was anti-Facebook up until a month ago, and I'm just amazed at how much has helped our audience grow and helped me interact. So I've come out of my shell a little bit. So uh, shoot me uh, questions to, tonight. We had over a couple hundred today. Hopefully we can get a, that same amount tomorrow. I'll get back to everybody, um, but I'll, I'll post one online bright and early in the morning. So Sal, thanks so much. Great job again today. Thanks, Dave. Look forward to next week. Not that.